Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Welcome to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. They tell me, I read a book about podcasting, and they say, every episode, say what your podcast is about. It's about classic wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I don't know why I take advice from this stranger, but I gave him 15 bucks for the book, so I might as well. Uh, before I get rolling, I want to... First of all, invite everyone to the Facebook group. We had more questions from the Six Wrestling Universe. If you join the group, you're in, and you might get to ask a question, which we will address in this forum. Uh, also, follow me on Twitter. Uh, just search for John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you'd like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, this you know free, no commercials podcast, just PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. Next week, I'm going to get around to thanking everyone who's donated. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about this in a minute. I'm a little bit like I just got in the door. But before we get rolling, I, I know Lauren Bolbert listens to this podcast every <laughs> week. And Lauren, just, I would like to invite you to a musical. Let's sit next to each other and come. Well, let's make this happen. Steve, do you think that's a good idea? I do. Well, uh, <laughs> moving right along, uh, we had some great uh, uh, feedback on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Uh, John, we did. Yeah, it, well, not, not only about last week, but uh, the usual great questions just keep coming up. Uh, John Mizuki was asking, would Terry Gordy have been a good traveling NWA world champion? Yeah, and I got, you know what? I learned from someone. I, I forget exactly who. I'm like, you know, yes, absolutely. And I think he, uh, and, you know, he should have done or he could have done had Ric Flair not existed exactly what Bill Watts did with him in 1986. And then someone brought up, uh, was Terry Gordy reliable enough? And I was like, <laughs> ooh, good point. My, my, my big issue with him, I think just the interviews, uh, I don't think he was that high level interview that you'd want out of an NWA champ. Like I said, do what do what Watts did. Have him with Michael Hayes. There you go. That's that's a good selling point. And and I also wanted to give credit to uh, uh, Tony Castro, who asked, "Why is everyone obsessed with AEW ratings and attendance figures?" What's your take on that, John? Uh, it's. I don't think anyone's really obsessed. It's it's a a. Uh it's a method of measuring how well the company's doing. Yeah. And if ratings are strong, it's doing well. So, you know, I mean, we don't have access to AEW financials, but, you know, we do know that the, the shows they have are pretty highly rated. By the way, I'm going to preach to everyone a little bit really quickly. Uh, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does, as I always do. But uh, I'm happy that Lou is doing better. Lou got COVID. And Lou was vaccinated and he got the booster and he got it and he was still sick. But I'll tell you what, I mean, it it reels in the symptoms. It lowers the symptoms. It could have saved his life. So if you have not been vaccinated and you're on the fence, look, 
it could save your life. Please do it. Yeah, and I, I work for a healthcare provider myself, and uh, I know the next big batch of <laughs> doses are coming out soon. And uh, we have to get a flu shot uh, on our job as part of our regular function and work function. So I'm going to get two shots, the flu shot and the booster. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get the booster as soon as it comes out, the, the new thing that's coming out. Absolutely. And and I really like the topic you came up with this week, John, about the, the very first Saturday night's main event. That's what we're going to talk about. But I'll tell you what, give me like 60 seconds to be a, an angry old man <laughs> yelling at clouds here, right? <laughs> I, I, it's Sunday night. And I literally just got in the door like five minutes ago. By now, it's like 10 minutes. And it's it's Sunday night. It's like 7 o'clock. And there's traffic outside. And I'm like, what the hell? What are these people doing outside on a Sunday? Go home. And maybe just the world has changed and people do stuff on Sunday. The Patriots are playing tonight. So maybe that's a factor. But that's not for another like hour and a half later. So, you know, yeah, I'm allowed to be driving around. But you guys aren't. That's where I'm coming from. <laughs> Yeah, we we had the same thing down here in Tampa. We just had a one o'clock Bucks game, and I was out. I went to church late in the day, and I kind of ran into some of that. But uh, yeah, everybody's home. Everybody's ready for sixty minutes and ready for uh, the primetime NFL game. So that's right. And, hey, I'm sacrificing for you guys. I'm going to miss some Patriots for this <laughs> podcast. But anyway, <laughs> the first Saturday night's main event it aired on May 11th, 1985. Steve, what a huge deal the WWF is on a network. It, it, you know, we've gone from the show being on UHF stations either early in the morning or late at night. And yeah, it's late at night, but it's NBC. I mean, it, it was mind blowing. Well, you know, well, you and I lived through it. I mean, we, we saw the evolution. We saw them have uh, these great syndicated shows, like you said, on at weird hours. And we saw, you know, them on HBO briefly. We saw WWF on USA Network. We saw them uh, migrate the year before to MTV. And um, if you remember the uh, uh, Sports Illustrated issue with Hulk Hogan on the cover, which came out right about a month before the first Saturday Night's main event, there was an article in there uh, where they did talk about the fact that the show was going to NBC. And apparently Dick Ebersol was very much impressed with Vince's TNT show. And apparently that made such a strong impression on him that he decided that, you know, wrestling would be a really good fit uh, as a maybe once a month replacement for Saturday Night Live. And this was the kind of the pilot episode to see how well it would do in that time slot. Yes, and my understanding is that it did very well. Um, and it was funny they couldn't they couldn't go on syndicated TV and say, "Hey, we the WWF are going to be on NBC eleven thirty at night on Saturday the eleventh because that's a conflict." You know, you don't want. If you're running one TV station, you don't want them advertising for another TV station. But they, you know, they kind of danced around it. They hinted around it and they did a lot of advertising. I mean, you know, I remember there was a full page ad in TV Guide. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to make sure people knew about it. Oh, yeah. And um, and I will tell uh, our audience that uh, may have been uh, fans who came in wrestling later. Um, if you go back and watch this show on uh, the Peacock or if you find it in a different place um especially the peacock version the the two major differences you'll see from from what's on peacock and the original 
on the original, after the very first match, which we'll get to in a minute, the six-man tag team match, they did air this really uh, entertaining video for, uh, that was a promo for the Goonies movie, uh, Goonies Are Good Enough, a Cindy Lauper video uh, directed by Richard Donner, who directed the Goonies movie and you know, big-time Hollywood director. And then the other big difference was is that a lot of these matches, uh, you know, you're not getting the authentic um, – the entrance music. Uh, the big example was when uh, Wyndham, Rotundo, and Steamboat were coming to the ring. Uh, originally, it was born in the USA with and, and with Bruce Springsteen and Captain Lou was leading them to the ring to that. And if, if you watch it on Peacock, you get this uh, kind of generic country and Western theme that uh, maybe Jimmy Hart wrote it when he was writing those entrance themes to the wrestling video games. It it had the, the the term USA in it, and it sounded like Bruce Springsteen, but it didn't sound anything like Born in the USA. Yeah, yeah it sounded much more like a country song. It did, it did mention USA. It was kind of patriotic, but you know, didn't really have that uh, get up off your feet like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously they they I, I guarantee you they never had permission to use Born in the USA. It's just the way things ran in 1985. Oh yeah, and later on in the show when uh, Cindy Lauper made her appearance for the ladies match, uh, uh, where I'm sure they played probably played "Girls Just Want to Have Fun." It's her entrance theme. They had this kind of a generic, uh, you know, kind of a punk uh, like a dance theme when she was coming in then the song was somewhat appropriate but again it was just like a generic track so yeah it was kind of a generic okay let's make a let's make uh music that sounds like it was uh made in 1985 kind of thing <laughs> just you know rubber stamp new wave kind of thing right all right now uh, steve i should have i should have mentioned this to you before we got on started recording uh greg Ganya got on a a podcast which we no longer have access to it was gary capetta's old uh gold 57 sure. yeah or whatever it was mm -hmm. and greg Ganya claimed that the awa uh was working with cbs um in 19 i believe he said it was early 1983 or late 1982 uh to have a similar show on cbs and i just can't imagine that greg's telling the truth i can't because, I mean, the AWA was not national. It was a Midwestern. I think by that point they were in uh, San Francisco. But, you know, they only covered a, a small fraction of the country. You know, if, you know, no one in New York, Los Angeles, Miami, uh, Boston, Philadelphia, Houston, wherever, they're not going to know what the AWA is. They're not going to know who their wrestlers are. He was talking about doing Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Yeah, everyone who knew who Andre was, and some people knew who Hogan was, but that's it. Yeah, well, great guy, yeah. I mean, I, I, a great guy and everything, but some of his stories just don't hold up. I mean, I know right now he's marketing this line of uh, dolls of legendary wrestlers. In fact, there's a Vern Kanye doll and a Don Leo Jonathan doll, and, and these are all like $40 each, and he's saying that they're just flying off the shelves. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if there's such a market for 50s and 60s wrestlers. Maybe there is. I, I don't went know. out and bought all of the Don Lee, <laughs> Leo Jonathan dolls. Doll, so he's telling the truth on that one. All right, you, you got me on that one. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that, but I mean, you know, I get it. He grew up in the wrestling business, and he's used to working people, i.e., lying to everybody. And I just, you know, I just cannot see the AWA having a, a show on CBS 
during that time frame. But it, it goes to show how quickly Vince McMahon made the WWF a national product. They were strictly regional at the very end of, well, let's go with the very beginning of 1984. And here we are about mm, 15, 16 months later, and he's got national syndication. He's got Hulk Hogan on MTV. They had the Cindy, uh, not the Cindy Lauper, the fabulous Mula against Wendy Richter match on MTV. I mean, he really got that thing from, from, from national to regional, maybe even partially global, in the blink of an eye, relatively speaking. No, you're you're absolutely right, and a part of that too, I think. Uh you cannot underestimate the power of that Channel 9 show. I mean, it had been on at midnight for a long, long time. I think going back to maybe 1975 or so. I mean, there was, I'm sure we've all seen it on uh, our different Facebook pages. They had these ads in Variety with Bruno on the cover of it saying, you know, the, you know, catch WWF wrestling on uh, WOR at midnight. It, it gets the hugest share of the ratings. And, of course, Saturday Night Live itself debuted back in, I think, 1975 and and i'm sure that they were aware that there was on some you know obscure channel there's this wrestling on that competes with us and really kicks our ass in the ratings in the new york market so <laughs> so i think a lot of the people were really aware of, of the wrestling and it was just finally this time this moment in time where you know vince had uh, you know he was kind of like uh, the chains that had been unleashed his father had always wanted to just play it the old-fashioned way and his father passed away a year before this and now he's off and running off to the races so to speak and uh nbc's happy to have him because you know with saturday night live you can only do so many live shows you need a kind of a break for the actors and the writers to come up with new stuff so this pilot episode if if successful would be a really nice fit for them so they could have wrestling on once a month instead of an old rerun of saturday night live yeah, I remember um, watching this with a group of people, and you know, one of which was my girlfriend, one of her friends, and they were pissed. They were like, Saturday Night Live, and by the <laughs> way, they were both right around my age. Yeah. Saturday Night Live is supposed to be on right now, even a rerun. It's supposed to be on. It's been on since we were in grade school, and it's not on, and they were not happy, and they didn't like wrestling anyway. It, so. and, and this is the initial airing that we're going to talk about, that, that you were there with a the big group of people? A big group, like I want to say five or six people. And yeah, uh, May 11th on that Saturday night, we all got together and, you know, we're just hanging out and all right, wrestling's time for wrestling to be on. And these two are like, (laughs) well, I I had a similar experience too. I went to my friend's house and uh, his mom and dad were there and his younger sister was there. And, uh, and, you know, we, we had gone as a group to see WrestleMania on closed circuit just, you know, a few weeks before, and, you know, him and I had gone a lot of hot shows together. So we're watching this NBC show and everybody's like really excited about it and his younger sister in that first match uh, I don't know how much of a wrestling fan she was but she really she really liked the George Steele character in that first match uh, as he's making his baby face transformation Steve, you, you want to take a I this just jumped into my head okay. you want to take a journey back to 1985 yes of course 
I was not drinking them. There were wine coolers present. You remember those? <laughs> I remember those. Yes, those were. I thought they were disgusting, <laughs> and they, they were a, a 1985 fad that went went away quickly. <laughs> there were wine coolers everywhere in 1985. That that just jumped into my head. <laughs> well, one thing one thing we should also mention, uh, and this is something that John and I had talked briefly about uh, uh, online uh, earlier in the week, uh, to to kind of prepare NBC's audience for this. In addition to all the ads that John had mentioned, uh, they aired on the um, uh, Saturday afternoon uh, uh, NBC sports show. Uh, uh, Bob Costas had hosted this like one hour show all about wrestling. Some of it was historical stuff where they had interviewed Monsoon talking about uh, Bruno and they interviewed different people. In fact, there was a really cool little feature on uh, uh, the biggest Jim Dugan fan in Louisiana. Uh, but this show was kind of like an introductory to uh, professional wrestling from NBC Sports. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, put the links up so people can watch that. But it was really uh, kind of a neat little uh, documentary they put together. Yeah, I you know you sent me that, and I was like, oh my god, you know, I saw this in 1985, and I kind of haven't thought of it since. So thank you for that. Now the show starts, and the first person we see is Cindy Lauper, along with Wendy Richter. Cindy Lauper was a huge star in 1985. Um, no one had really heard of her until like the end of 1983, when Girls Just Want to Have Fun came out. Uh, the video was a smash. The uh, song went to number one. Then 1984, she had a couple of other number one singles. I'm not sure who to compare her to, Steve, in, in terms of you know anyone else. She was not as big as Madonna. She was not as big as Taylor Swift is now. I mean, maybe Janet Jackson in the 90s. I, I, I'm not sure who a good comp is. No, no, I I, I have the same problem. I, I can't think of anybody right now. But 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 she she really uh, was a very mainstream uh, star at the time. Uh, that video with Lou Albano in it had played on MTV like practically every hour. People really loved that video, and uh, that led to more videos with uh, Captain Lou in it. And um, but yeah, those were the first two people that were on the air, and uh, and you can hear them talking about the match. It was really a kind of a goofy opening, but uh, I think they just wanted to make everybody aware that Cindy Lauper was going to be on this show, and to you know keep your eyes uh, open and in case you didn't really like wrestling, then she'd be on it. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, take notice. This isn't uh, a minor league operation. Here, Here's Cindy Lauper. The next person who is on is Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. Once again, a big star who had not his own t uh, TV show, but the A-Team. He was the main star. So right there, they're telling you, hey, look, Cindy Lauper and Mr. T. So then once again, that's not an accident. And it's a, it's a, just a great idea. Well, it, it was. And, and again, uh, like we said earlier, WrestleMania had only happened about uh, five, six weeks prior to this event on NBC. And they did allude to WrestleMania. They showed some still photos and things. And uh, uh, they're, they're all, these are all the stars of WrestleMania right before your eyes. So uh, definitely, uh, if you had any interest in wrestling whatsoever, you're watching this show. Yeah, and even if you know, even if you're not, even if you're used to just seeing Saturday Night Live at eleven thirty, well, are you going to change to the channel and watch an old movie? Or are you going to give this a try? Yeah, I, I'm sure if it was a younger person or uh, it's a person that you know would like to try wrestling or something different, I'm sure they stuck around for it. 
Now, one thing I noticed when they first started, uh, Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov, and uh, George the Animal Steel, along with Fred Blassie, are coming to the ring. Uh, it was just a great atmosphere at the Long Island Coliseum. I mean, it looked like something out of a movie. Vince could not have asked for a better uh, audience on the live camera. The, 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 the audience was hot. Everyone was standing up, yelling stuff. It was perfect. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, when they were showing that crowd, uh, you could see like some young people that look like they're out on their date together. You saw some kids there. You saw some old dames, old broads there at ringside. And uh, it, it's a far cry from today's wrestling where it looks like uh, they just released 5,000 people, uh, 5,000 men from a men's prison. I mean, it's quite, quite different. <laughs> Very different. And like I said, it was the, the perfect atmosphere, the perfect look. Vince couldn't have asked for anything better. First match is Ricky Steamboat, Barry Windham, and Mike Rotundo against Sheik Volkoff and Steele. Oh, and I also I wanted to point out, you saw the Sheik coming to the ring, and security people are pushing fans out of the way who are trying to touch, hit, whatever, Iron Sheik. Just another great piece of video oh yeah it, it, it was really funny watching that i mean really throughout the whole show the, the security guys are, are just really ramming the fans and pushing them back and and for whatever reason that entryway that they had from all the way in the back to the ring seemed fairly narrow i mean you could have the wrestler walk through but the fans were really on top of these guys and uh yeah, so we're we're getting ready for the match. I just uh, I just love the 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 blasting Albano had uh, you know key roles in the, this first uh, big uh, network match, and they had been such an important part of the worldwide wrestling federation. And here they are on the big network stage uh, all these years later. Well, one thing I am good at, Steve, as far as this podcast goes, is I can remember little things that jumped into my head that night. Yeah. And one thing that jumped into my head was Fred Blassie has gone from, you know, he always looked old because he was old <laughs> as far as, you know, when I first started wrestling in 1976, you know, he's this old guy who's a manager. Now I, I felt like he crossed the bridge into looking too old. I remember it was on this night that, you know, wow, Fred Blassie's really getting up there. And in a way, it's not good because if you look old, frail, and defenseless, how are you going to get heat? Well, uh, I will say when they showed the Goonies video and him and Piper came out of the limo, to, <laughs> to me, even though he was an older guy, he looked like he looked like a million bucks. He looked like a movie star. I mean, he really did. Oh. You know, he, he he was classy Freddie Blassie, larger than life. But I, I, I definitely understand your point, though. I mean, he's not the kind of a heel that you, you want to see him get busted right in the chops and knocked on his ass because he, he's yeah. an older man. He's 65 he years old. do that. He's too old. We, and, and we didn't know at the time that him and Albana would have a cage match in the same building about a year later. So. It was it, it was like, I want to say that was September, uh, right around September of 1985. And yeah, they had a cage match with Blasley and Albano. And I can only imagine how good that was. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, now, it was a good enough match, not a great match. But Jeff Souza asked, how stunned were you when George Steele turned Stunned was not the not the word. To me, this was unimaginable that they would turn George the Animal Steel into a good guy. And 
I mean, I was never a George Steele fan, heel or babyface, but I have to admit it worked and it was well crafted for that WWF audience. Yeah, it, it really made a lot of sense because he had those uh, on-ball challenges to Hogan in 84, you know, a few championship matches, even won a couple on DQ. He wasn't really going to be in the, in the mix for that anymore. So to, to turn this a long time, healed into a good guy and they just turned albano a few months ago for maybe five or six months earlier uh to to pair him up again with his old manager it, it definitely kind of made sense to me as, from an old fan standpoint yeah it was almost like you know lou albano immediately turned into to his protector right yeah yeah the, yeah because he had been abandoned in the ring and and the match itself was kind of funny because i noticed uh watching it again this past week iron Sheik was doing pretty much the entire wrestling of the match uh steel and volkov barely got in at all and it was funny at one point ricky steamboat uh gave george Steele a hip toss and i don't think Steele had taken a bump in a match in about maybe four or five years he kind of landed <laughs> kind of awkwardly but i know i know backland had rolled them up uh, a lot of times where they were finishing doing their finishing of a match but other than the, their backland roll-up that hip toss was probably his first bump in about five or six years yeah really <laughs> i mean and they did a good job with it because it they made it look like okay you know fred blassie put george Steele into this bad situation where he doesn't understand tag team wrestling and as a result he got confused and pinned and then the bad guys all turned on him yeah, yeah, and and you're definitely uh, creating a, a sense of uh, of the vulnerable George Steele, not the uh, old uh, George Steele who was just just this guy who could uh, tear down a telephone pole if you wanted to. But uh, you know, I, I guess this is the kind of stuff that Dick Ebersol enjoyed. Uh, I mean, he had himself produced uh, a season of Saturday Night Live, so he had a sense of humor. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if they had uh, already had the idea of him being the uh, beast to elizabeth's beauty quite yet but uh i'm sure that would be down the line fairly quickly uh randy savage debuted right around this time maybe a little bit like maybe a few no i think he had already debuted like he but he had just debuted and elizabeth hadn't been on tv yet so i don't think they were that far down the line i, I mean steve one thing i i think i've mentioned this on the show before i mean we talk about you know was it a surprise that george Steele turned if someone on May 11th, 1984 had told me that in a year, both Captain Lou Albano and George the Animal Steel were both going to be good guys, I would have said, you are insane. <laughs> and I remember watching TNT right before Christmas 1984, and they had Lou Albano reading a Christmas poem to two children who had their backs to the camera. Lou Albano was facing the camera. The kids were facing Lou Albano. Mm -hmm. And Lou finished, and then the kids turned around, and they had, like, the fake Lou Albano beard. <laughs> and was this, and, uh, was this Shane and Stephanie? It, you know, God, you know what? I have to go back and watch it. I mean, I can't see why not. But I remember, like, it immediately I added up what was going on. Now, they were turning Lou Albano, and I was like, no, this is impossible. 
impossible. But the segment spoke for itself. And a few weeks later, Roddy Piper, you know, slammed that that award over his head at Madison Square Garden. The, the, the turn was complete. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I will say for the first six months to a year, the turn of Lou Albano really worked. I mean, uh, he was still uh, really, really popular, especially with Wyndham and Rotunda. Um, he was a really good, uh, you know, guy. He was the guiding light for them, and he was uh, gave them some needed personality. Uh, but yeah, over time that would kind of get old and boring, but, uh, what you just said kind of, re- it took me into one of our questions that Jay Bowser asked. He asked both of us, uh, would we have ever thought in the late seventies or the early eighties, if would Vince have taken his company on a national expansion, uh, big enough to be in the, on NBC, so, yeah, I mean, I'll answer that part of it. Uh, no, well, I probably wanted to see something like this happen back in the late 70s. I mean, I can remember being in a department store, still being a kid, uh, you know, maybe a preteen uh, ager, and I could see they had a Muhammad Ali ring. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, man, I would like to buy this just to pretend that I had wrestlers to wrestle in this ring. And, and lo, lo and behold, uh, you know, six, seven years later, all these LJNs come out. I was too old for it by then. I, I was reading Playboy by then. But uh, for the kids of the, of the new modern age of the mid 80s, I'm glad they had wrestling dolls they could play with. Yeah, that was inconceivable. And I, I always had this like thought that you know, back then the promotions were all working together. And what if they put together a super card yeah. that was on syndicate syndicated network, like the battle of the belt, something yeah. like that. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure it's one of those things. Logistically it's tough, but I mean, that was always kind of something I wanted to say. Oh yeah. I'm right there with you. I mean, you and I were so addicted and so brainwashed by these wrestling magazines that there's these three huge alliances, the AWA, the NWA, the WWE, WWF, and we're both thinking in our heads like uh, a supercard. Of course, it's going to happen, and and it didn't really happen. But the, but these promotions really fought to become exclusive and bigger than the rest, and uh, we lived through this really interesting time. We did, and you know, like like Steve said, I mean, both of us, our imaginations were captured at an early age, and and remained captured. I mean, for a long time by this crazy wrestling business. Now, next up, we have a Piper's Pit with Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff had sort of turned a little bit at WrestleMania five or six weeks earlier. He had been in limbo for that five or six week period. I have a match with him against Hulk Hogan. Uh, from the Philadelphia Spectrum that happened after WrestleMania, but before this taping. And it was almost like, you know, Paul Orndorff, it's almost like a a good guy versus good guy match. And they shook hands afterward. But Paul was kind of in limbo for a long time. It was like they were waiting for this night to finalize his turn. You know, just hearing what you just said, it just blows my mind now in retrospect that you had all these major, major heels all turning like so quickly. I mean, you had Albano six months before. You had George Steele turning on this very night. And and what you're describing sounds so much like what Sergeant Slaughter had just done back at the uh, start of 84, the end of 83. I mean, uh, I, I guess once a guy gets so, so hated or so um, dominant, you just want to turn him into a good guy. 
And you, you know, back in the day, they couldn't or didn't just take Orndorf off the road after WrestleMania until this event. You know, it was the same thing with Slaughter. It was unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and as far as the pit itself, I mean. Uh, you know, it, it just, it, it was so much better than like the kind of stuff that they try to put on now where they have something like a Piper's pit. I mean, Piper, it was, this was very br- brief and to the point. I mean, this Piper got right in his face and said, you know, you know, you suck, man, or whatever he said, or you let us down you let the team down at WrestleMania. And, and, uh, you know, Orndorff was, seemed stunned at first that Piper said that. And then, uh, they wanted to just uh, kill each other from that point forward. Yeah, uh, it got a little bit out of hand when Piper said, you let me down, you let Ace down, you let your family down, and that's when Orndorff kind of lost it. Don't you talk about my family. Steve, I want I want you to guess, okay? This, this was about a three-minute segment. How many times, Steve, did Roddy Piper ask or tell Paul Orndorff to sit down? Because I counted. Uh, five times. <laughs> 19 times. Oh, my God. And it felt like 119 <laughs> times. Check down, check down, check down. Like, that was a whole segment. And, you know, that's what Piper's Pit had turned into. By In, in 84, it was great entertainment. But by the middle of 85, it, it, I noticed even back then, I'm like, this thing has jumped the shark. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, compared to what would follow it, I mean, when we're talking about stuff like Brother Love and, and the Bruce Beefcake's Barbershop, I mean, this is still like uh, Academy Award winning material we're talking about and he kind of it didn't have a a name like piper's pit but he was kind of doing this in georgia in 81 and early 82 he would do interviews with the baby face faces and he'd say things that would piss them off and you know the heat was starting to rise so we're having a little bit more of a a more organized version of that um and the whole and i remember steve watching this 1985 i'm like okay hulk hogan's coming to the ring any second and he didn't. It was Mr. T who came out to make the save after Piper tried to sucker Orndorf and wound up getting double teamed by Bob Orton Jr. and Roddy Piper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, what happened on this show? I mean, to me, the, the most important thing on this show was the fact that uh, uh, Paul Orndorf kind of switched allegiances and he was there to back up Hogan and T. As there, there was a moment there where. Uh, you had uh, in the ring was Piper and Orton and T was there and Hogan was there. And you really got the feeling, or at least I did that, you know, as tough as Mr. T was, he was a lot smaller than the Orton and the Piper. And I think they would have done a number on him. I mean, Hogan was tough, but I think he would have been out number two if, if T had been uh, demolished. No, and like I said, now and after I watched, I understood the uh, the story they were telling with Hogan, Orndorff, and Mr. T. Um, next up, a Hulk Hogan interview, and it was a typical Hogan interview, but it was you know, Mother's Day weekend, and Hogan comes out, and he says, I'm going to do a special match for my mother, brother. <laughs> I don't remember it, but when I watched it a couple of days ago, I was cracking up. Yeah, he had to have done that on purpose. I, I would say, um, uh, not to be overly critical, but on this show, I thought Hogan kind of phoned it in, and and I think Jesse himself, uh, 
again, it was a pilot episode. I mean, they were working out the kinks. Uh, Jesse wasn't really on his game either in this first show. And another thing that I found kind of humorous was you, you could st- still see the remnants of old wrestling. Uh, they didn't yet have the WWF logo on the turnbuckles. They didn't have uh, – the WWF crew at ringside, they had all the old uh, New Jersey commissioners, I guess, or New York commissioners at ringside watching the, the matches and going ons and pretending that they're doing something important when they're just taking up space. Yeah, welcome to the life of state athletic commissioners. <laughs> I mean, I think I've gone off on them enough on this sh- on this show, but I, I definitely do not approve. Yeah, I mean, there was one young guy who was part of that that group of commissioners, and when JYD is dancing with his mother near the end of the show, he really he, he really popped for that. He probably stood up and started clapping his hands together. He was really into it. Well, I'm I'm glad they were having fun. Uh, let's get in a couple of more questions because they are actually pertinent to this match. Uh, Jamie Ward asks, "Who do you think persuaded Vince from not doing a show of basic squash matches up until this point? He rarely gave away good matches on free TV, which is a hundred percent true." And then Nick Turbo asks, "Was Hulk Hogan battling Orton the right choice, or would someone else have made sense?" My feeling on it, Steve, is they could not have, you know, another hour of championship wrestling. I mean, they had to have a a big show with the big stars mostly going up against each other. Well, I absolutely agree. I mean, to Jamie's question, uh, I'm sure NBC, uh, uh, not just Ebersol, but the other network people, uh, they wanted to have a certain caliber of wrestlers and 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 squash matches just wouldn't fly on a big network tv show so so they 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 did have one yeah yeah they did have one and and i think um i think pete doherty actually was an excellent opponent for for jyd because they were just they just wanted to get him over as this you know super strong uh, superhero wrestler but yeah I, i was happy that they did have more competitive matches no, definitely. I, I think I don't think Vince needed to be persuaded. I think Vince knew what was up that, you know, he couldn't have squash match after squash match on the show. And to answer Nick's question, you know, was Orton the right choice? Even before I read that question, I was like, I think Orton is the perfect choice oh, because yeah. he's not so high up on the card that he can't afford to do a job. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even really do a job. Right, so, but right. he was he was an excellent choice. You know, Bob Orton Jr., when he is in, when he has his working shoes on, could have a good match with a mannequin, and he, he was the perfect choice. He was, you know, the the guy standing behind Roddy Piper, and you know, like I said, I thought that was that was really well booked having uh, Hogan and Orton. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, as far as from from a wrestling perspective, because I know this was a ninety minute show, and I think that the actual wrestling may have accounted for probably less than thirty minutes uh, total. Uh, I mean, this was really the highlight as far as just seeing, you know, the stars of WrestleMania all together in the ring at one time. I mean, Orton didn't really put up much wrestling in the match. It was just kind of a quick brawl. But I I think the fans at home, and I I know I felt this way, uh, I really uh, felt uh, behind Orndorff. you know, in a, I guess in a kayfabe sense, like I'm, I'm rooting for Orndorff now that he's kind of seen the light and he's going to be a good guy. And with Hogan and T, uh, you know, you can really believe in these guys as uh, kind of like the leaders of the World Wrestling Federation. 
Yeah, while watching this, I was like, okay, here is where Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff are going to buddy up. Because as soon as I saw, you know, uh, Orton versus Hogan with Roddy Piper outside the ring, I'm like, okay, we're going to see Paul Orndorff very soon. And we did. Once again, though, strangely enough, it was Mr. T who came out to offset Roddy Piper. Yeah, and and I guess I think they wanted to kind of create that um, uh, feeling of uh, we need the the good guys, the bigger good guys, Hogan and Orndorff, to kind of come together because uh, T really looked diminutive in this match to me. I mean, he just looked overmatched. And and I will say, uh, and this might be controversial, but uh, I think Hogan and Orndorff, seem much more in sync together as a team and, and together working together on the same side than say uh, the more popular Hogan and Savage. I mean, Hogan and Savage, you think maybe more of them a lot because of their, uh, you know, the success they had later on, but Hogan and Orndorff, they look like brothers together. I know they both kind of grew up in the Tampa area and that's part of it, but they, they look so similar in the ring and they're you know, both super tan, both super uh, muscular and uh, the size isn't difference isn't that much. No, it isn't. And for those unaware of what happened, of course, Roddy Piper ran in and, and that led to it. He interfered and then he ran in, leading to Bob Orton Jr. being DQ'd. They double teamed Orndorff. Then Mr. T gets in the ring. The, uh, Piper and Orton do a number on Mr. T, which kind of surprised me that Mr. T would allow that. I figured, <laughs> you know, his ego would step up. But no, Mr. T played ball. Good for him. And now is when Paul Orndorff comes to the ring and cleans house. You know, so now it's Hogan and Orndorff there together, and that story has been told. They they did something. I thought this was really well produced, Steve. I thought this looked like fantastic TV, except for one thing that I noticed during this match. Okay, that? Mm-hmm. that the arena was not full. Right. They had an angle where you could see, and it, you know, it was mostly full, but there was an angle where you could see empty seats. You know, it was in the upper deck in the corner, but still, if I'm producing this show, you don't get one nanosecond of seeing an empty seat. So I'm not sure how that how that that got by them. No, no, the, I, I know what you're talking about because near the entrance area where the wrestlers were coming out of, there was probably like a group of about 20 or 30 seats that were completely empty. And, and Vince later on would kind of become famous for, you know, not having this on, on screen and on camera. And uh, I know, um, you, you know, as we know from the wrestling history books and from Meltzer and what have you, uh, Vince is learning so much now uh, working with Ebersol and, and the NBC people are, are kind of training the uh, Titan sports people, the production people on how to use the cameras better, how to light better, how to do all this better. And I think John Filippelli was one of the top uh, TV directors who did the Super Bowls. He did the Olympics and, and Vince actually plucked him away from NBC for a few years. And this is like two or three years from now, but it, it just shows you how the, the synergy between Titan Sports and NBC Sports uh, and NBC Productions really uh, turned uh, this regional Northeast uh, TV production into a world class production. 
Absolutely. One other thing I noticed during this match is Roddy Piper was outside the ring. He was in uh, Orton's corner and something went on. Uh, A spectator either tried to jump the rail or something because you see all kinds of security running over. You couldn't see exactly what happened, but something happened. Yeah. And and it's kind of cool to watch this early SNME or Saturday Night Main event because you're getting some of that old school feel that pretty soon you're not going to have at all because the subsequent shows get so much more glitzier and more over the top and more emphasis on the music and the glitz and the glamour rather than the old school wrestling and drawing heat and things like that. Yeah, the business was changing rapidly before my eyes. And, you know, even at the time, I was noticing that, wow, things are are way different. Next up, we have the fabulous Moolah doing an interview. Now, number one, fabulous Moolah, you know, what can I say? She's 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 old. She's an old <laughs> woman on television. It was noticeable in 1985. And one of the things that has changed, you know, back then, Steve, we had no way of looking up exactly how old Fabulous Moolah was. I figured, okay, she's probably mid-40s, late-40s, but looks older than that. No, she's in her early 60s. She's 62 years old doing this. Yeah, and if you had told either one of us uh, back then in 85 that uh, 20 years later, her and May Young are to be taking uh, p- uh, power bombs through tables, uh, I would have blown my mind hearing that. <laughs> well, the the wrestling business, the way it changed, or the WWF, the way it changed, like starting 97, 98, uh, once again, blew my mind at the time. But this was not a good interview. Uh Moolah kind of got off track several times. She was babbling a little bit. This had, okay, take two written all over it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the match itself and also the promos that from the beginning of the show with Cindy and Wendy Richter, it really reminded me what a uh, excellent female wrestler Wendy Richter was. I mean, uh, you know, in the 80s, uh, you know, it's not like today where, you know, Rhea Ripley kind of looks like she just fell off uh, like a lingerie catalog while she's wrestling. Uh, you know, Wendy Richter is dressed much more conservatively, but she's really a, like, a, like, a, like almost like a fitness model in her shape. Uh, really great conditioning, uh, you know, great wrestler, and she makes Mula look good, which is, you know, got to be a difficult thing for anybody to do at that point. You know, one thing, Steve, I, I noticed while watching this match, Wendy Richter absolutely is an athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe the story that she used to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. More on that in a couple of minutes. <laughs> but I did look it up on Wiki. And it said, you know, she attended Bossier High School where she participated in volleyball, track, and cross country. And I was like, you know, before I looked it up, I'm like, this chick definitely played volleyball and or basketball. And yeah, volleyball. Yeah. And we had seen her. um, We had seen her in a match, I think, from MSG about a year prior. It was just like a house show match. And I think Winona Littlehart was in it and a couple of other Moolah's girls. But it was like a a three-and-a-half-star match, one of the best non-Japanese ladies' matches you'd ever see. And uh, we could tell at the time, I mean, you and I both agreed that she was so far ahead of the curve. And uh, she really needed to be promoted. And the Cindy Lauper thing proved to be the best vehicle to get her on a national stage. 
I remember that match. I saw it for the first time maybe five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was from April 1984, Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. which I did not have in my collection, like I said, until like four or five years ago. And it was Princess Victoria and Velvet McIntyre against Wendy Richter. And I forget who. It might have been Judy Martin. But you're right. It was like a three and a half, three and three quarter star match, which was unheard of. Uh, in WWF uh, ladies wrestling. Oh yeah, it, and she was definitely a part of a new wave of lady wrestling. Uh, um, the the lady that you mentioned, uh, Velvet McIntyre, was another one. Uh, Judy Martin, Leilani Kai. I mean, they were all uh, excellent wrestlers. But Wendy was really the only one that really kind of had that sex appeal or that uh, mainstream appeal to get her into uh, covers of magazines and on the cover of trading cards and things like that. I remember they had Wendy Richter and Hulk Hogan on the cover of WWF magazine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they did so much airbrushing on Wendy Richter. <laughs> it was insane. And I want to make something really clear here before I, I say what I'm going to say. Wendy Richter was a very pretty woman. But in my opinion, I mean, was she really pretty enough for what they wanted to do with her? They wanted to make her the Hulk Hogan of the women's division and they tried that and it worked for a little while, but it it didn't last. And the whole Wendy Richter in the WWF story was short and really bizarre. When you think about, you know, what was going to happen with her towards the end of 1985, where she allegedly um, got screwed out of the title by fabulous Moolah. I, I personally don't believe that story. Steve, I, I think, like I said, Wendy, let's say Wendy is a nine, I think they needed to go out and find a 10 <laughs> and whether that meant just finding a really attractive woman who plays volleyball or basketball uh, or soccer, whatever, and teaching her a few moves, trying to get her on the, uh, you know, fast track into the wrestling business. They should have done that in my opinion. Well, you know, I think Wendy, from what I've seen and looking back at this old footage, she just seemed to be too much of a nice person, a regular person, a very genuine person. I don't think she was the kind of a person that could uh, play games or uh, all of a sudden metamorphosize into this, like, you know, heel bitch, which I'm sure they may have wanted to turn her into at some point in the future. Um, you know, and, and they had the wisdom to you know, bring in Sherry Martell in, I think, 87, she finally arrived and they tried to gradually, you know, bring our women's division back. I mean, they tried it again a few, seven or eight years later with uh, London Blaze. And I mean, it would really take until the uh, Trish Stratus era there near the end of the, t- of the 90s or, t- or beginning of the 2000s to really start a legitimate women's division. So, where, where Wendy Richter was just kind of a one-off, uh, hey, let's have a cute girl in here with all of our top you know, guy wrestlers. It just wasn't meant to be uh, like a like an ongoing thing in the mid-'80s, I guess. Yeah, and on top of that, once you got done with Moolah, okay, yeah. and, and I feel like Lilani Kai is kind of, you know, underneath the Moolah umbrella. Right, right. I'm not saying there was nowhere to go, but if there was somewhere to go, they never got there. It was almost like, okay, you know, Wendy Richter was this, you know, 
She was hot in 1984, maybe a little bit in, into 1985, but by summer of 1985, it felt like they had no role for her. She was just doing one-off novelty matches, and then finally they got rid of her. And I'd really like to know what actually happened. Like I said, I I don't believe uh, Wendy did not know that Fabulous Moolah was the Spider Lady that, that night in Madison Square Garden. That's, that's, that's impossible to believe. Oh, especially since she had wrestled Moolah so many times and the body type was, was the same and everything. I mean, there were a couple of other ladies I know that they really wanted to uh, push. I mean, for, for like a hot minute, that Lady Maxine, they wanted to push her as a kind of a new wave uh, heel lady wrestler. And, and that, that uh, I think was her name was Lisa Sliwa. She was Curse Sliwa from the Guardian Angels. Yeah. Yeah, they had her on TNT a lot, and she kind of looked like uh, that uh, that New York Congresswoman now, uh, the, the Spanish lady who's in Congress. AOC. AOC, yeah. She looked like that, and she was very appealing looking, but I think that they had put her through uh, training, and even though she was like a, like a model already and she was into fitness, I don't think for whatever reason she just couldn't ad- adapt into wrestling. No, and uh, Lady Maxine couldn't adapt into wrestling. I saw her, uh, just so, for those who don't know, she was like this literally six-foot-tall woman with a giant mohawk, mm-hmm. which probably, you know, the top of the mohawk was six six and a half feet <laughs> off of the ground. And I saw her on a talk show, like not a wrestling show a regular talk show and she talked about how much she hated the wrestling business and she couldn't believe the the things people were saying to her and i I felt kind of bad for her but i i guess the point is that the wwf to make a women's division work you actually have to have a women's division it can't be wendy richter versus heel of the month and you know otherwise you have to put more tv time into it and it felt like the wwf was just like okay we're not going to invest tv time in this and it, it might have been the right thing you know look we've got an hour a week of, of championship wrestling we've got room for uh time for five matches i can't have two or three of them be women's matches i get that well, it, it, back in in that time, uh, you know, 85, 86, 87, you know, Vince is bringing in all this talent. You know, some of it is in and out, like Lickety Split, like uh, Buzz Sawyer and the Freebirds. And, and some guys are staying and succeeding, like you know, Harley Race. Uh, you know, different people are coming in and going. But, you know, the, the, just the idea of having a ladies' division, it, it's great on paper. It just didn't. I mean, I guess the fact that Vince was getting most of the women from Moolah to begin with, <laughs> he didn't have a lot of choices to go with. I no, mean, he didn't. I mean, he ended up later using some of the, uh, I know some of the Japanese talent. I think Dump, Dump Matsumoto came in for a match to the Garden. And, of course, in 87, the Jumping Bomb Angels came in, and they were very effective. But, uh, you know, I mean... It, it just the, the stars weren't aligned for a long Wendy Richter reign in the WWF, unfortunately. No, and it works now because Raw is a three-hour show and SmackDown is a two-hour show. You've got plenty of time. As a matter of fact, you've got time to fill. And you know, back then they had one hour of championship wrestling and then they had one hour of All-Star wrestling, and which was clearly the B show. Next up, Cindy Lauper's gives her mom a mother's day party okay 
It was so nice of her to invite the Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov, <laughs> and Fred Blassie to this party. And they were nice enough to wear their wrestling gear and tag team belts to this. It was just a very bizarre thing. Well, the, again, the Ebersol, I'm sure, wanted to uh, have the feel of the TNT show, the kind of the gimmicky, cheesy stuff that he saw in there. And, and, and they always you know, did funny gags. I mean, they didn't have Laura Alfred Hayes on this, but they had Gene Okerlund who was going to, you know, do the job to the cake. And, uh, and they had, uh, you know, Fred Blassie introduced the world to his mother, who is like a hot, uh, 40 uh, year old girl with her chest hanging out. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was funny and campy and, and, uh, you know, Hulk and uh, Lou Albano were really uh, featured heavily. And, uh, it was just kind of a nice, fun, um, way to kind of end the show, I guess. As soon as I saw that cake, I was watching it. It's about 1230 now. I want to say it probably about more like 1215. As soon as I saw that cake, I'm like, uh-oh, that was the most ominous thing in the world. And they did not let us down. Both Moolah and, and Gene Orkerlin were swimming in that giant cake by the end of the segment. But, I mean, again, it's something you would never have seen just two years earlier. You would have never seen a segment like that. 18 months earlier earlier well you know the the tnt show had really changed uh, uh you know I, I i guess as far as like an ebersol seeing tnt i mean i i think ebersol probably already liked wrestling like the midnight wrestling he was used to but like adding that whole tnt thing like the butcher vishan wedding i'm sure that was the episode that really caught his eye and hey you know anything can happen on here uh you know, uh, if, if anyone's never seen the Butcher Vashon wedding on TNT, I guess they have to make a point to check it out because it's it's really like kind of like WWF meets Animal House. So uh, check it out. You also want to check out Dr. D. David Schultz showing off his gun collection. <laughs> that may have been the funniest skit of all time, wrestling or otherwise. Um, yeah. So, you know what? If you're in the group, please remind me to show you where those are. I, I wouldn't mind, actually wouldn't mind seeing that segment again. It's hilarious. By this point, we, uh, Steve, I, I remember at the time this was starting to drag on a little bit, and now we've got Junkyard Dog versus Pete Darty, uh, and Junkyard Dog brings out at least who they're claiming is his mom, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. She's you know happy. Oh, I've never been to New York before, and I remember at the time saying, "You're in Uniondale. You still have never been <laughs> to New York." <laughs> well, well, she looked like a very nice lady, and uh, you know, uh, and, and during the the cake scene that we just mentioned, uh, you do see uh, JYD's uh, little daughter, who uh, I think eventually, when he was inducted in the Hall of Fame uh, in in two thousand and four, I think she uh, took the um, you know took the award for him uh, posthumously. Uh, so that, that was kind of cute to see her as a little, little girl and, uh, in JYD, I mean, you know, everybody likes to crap on his wrestling and the fact that he blew up and, you know, every match he, he would blow up really quickly, but I mean, the guy had so much charisma and, and even coming out to grab them cakes instead of, uh, the queen song by everyone bites the dust. Uh, he was a, such a very important part of the WWF of the mid eighties and one of the most likable, one of the most over characters for sure. He he was uh, short short term. I mean, but you know, then again, that's what wrestling is. I mean, if mm -hmm. you're on top for a year and a half, you're doing a really good job. You know, someone in the group 
mentioned that you know junk you know people talk about junkyard dog being out of shape well probably a large percentage of the group is out of shape and he was nice about it. he wasn't a jerk i mean you know my my take on it was that you know a okay but that person commenting on jyd look it's the wrestling business it's a cosmetic business it matters how you look number one and number two i mean you know junkyard dog that 1990 clash of the champions match against rick flair he, i mean he looked like he was gonna die three minutes into it because he was exhausted and i'm just saying it matters but one thing i wanted to throw in as a result of the conversation my junkyard dog king of new orleans book arrived today and i'll be reading that soon so, <laughs> good for you you might you might it might change something for you i don't know but anyway th- i mean i felt like at the time it was one commercial after another which is which was what the uh last half hour of saturday night live was was always like that you'd have you know a three minute segment and then you know five minutes of commercials and that's what this has turned into uh darty did a good job for what it was worth uh someone asked you know was he the right opponent i mean the whole thing was basically it felt like they were just trying to fill an hour at this or fill the the last half hour at this point and get jyd over yeah, I mean, they only had just so many uh, certain like uh, hot ticket items that they wanted to touch on, and it was so close to WrestleMania, so they were still really heavily pushing the Cindy Lauper part and the Mr. T part, and once that was all over with, like you said, they had just a little bit of extra time left over for, hey, let's, let's throw JYD a bone and uh, see what he can do with it. Yeah, and the last two, two things they did, did they had uh, Vincent, Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura on camera uh, for about 60 seconds. They went back to commercial, and then they went, you know, they had Vince and Jesse sign off. So live, the last half an hour of this was kind of painful to get through. But I thought overall it was a decent show, and more than that, it did a really good job getting the WWF over. Yeah, yeah, the the, uh, the the machine of the WWF back then, Titan Sports. I mean, you you and I had lived through all this stuff, you know, leading up to the national expansion, and just seeing them uh, progress so well and get all this new talent, and you know, let's not forget the Hulk Hogan Rock and Wrestling at CBS. You've got uh, all the shows on USA. Uh, they could have used Bobby Heenan on this maybe to, to uh, have uh, him and him involved in the Orndorff thing, but maybe he was deemed not essential, but Bobby Heenan would end up being a good, good focal point in the future episodes. But uh, yeah, I think we have to really look at this one as a pilot still. Uh, I'm sure that they knew that this is probably going to succeed and that it would probably be on the fall lineup. Uh, this wrestling was so, so very hot then. I mean, the MTV thing had done really well too. So um, even though there were some, like you say, they didn't need to keep going back to Vince and Jesse and Jesse seemed lost for words at times, which is very uncharacteristic of him, but um, the show would only get better, you know, would only improve and get more slicker and, and the editing would be a lot better. And uh, so, but, but for a first effort, this was outstanding. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't have any inside info on this, but I, I'll guarantee you this was the ultimate pilot. This was the ultimate experiment. Like, okay, you know, NBC is like, all right, let's see how this goes because they didn't have another one until October 1985. But obviously, hey, they kept going back to it and it did well on NBC for about five years. Uh, Danny Bentley asked, you know, frankly, the first one was kind of boring. Wouldn't you agree? I thought the la- I remember watching the last half an hour thinking, oh, my God, this is boring. Solomon Rodriguez says that if this first Saturday Night Main event was it convinced him that the WWF was the name brand in wrestling and that they were here to stay as a national phenomena. So, yeah, I agree with all of that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, whatever it was that they set out to do, they really set out to do it and accomplish what they set out to do. Uh, you know, having this connection with NBC and the prior connection to MTV, that part really set them so far apart from Jim Crockett Promotions, which was their main competition at the time. And I mean, for, for a lot of people that, you know, followed the business through the Observer and uh, followed the attendance and the TV ratings, you know, if you just went by attendance at the house shows, you would think, well, they're, they're neck and neck, they're even. But with them being on NBC and, and using NBC as this uh, uh, guiding uh, the, the future pay-per-views like WrestleMania 3, WrestleMania 4, all the other pay-per-views, uh, you know, Crockett didn't have a national um, I mean, they had Clash of the Champions, but not on network TV. And and it's not like TV of today, of 2023, where a lot of people don't even watch TV anymore. Uh, this, this was where, you know, back in the olden days where people really depended on TV for their entertainment. There was no streaming back then. So if you were on network TV, you were really considered you know, an elite, uh, elite thing like the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NBA. You, you just took the words out of my mouth. The Super Bowl was on a network. Right. The World Series was on a network. The WWF is now on a network. Now, you think about that. If you're watching uh, Bill Watts promotion or you're watching JCP, you're like, wow, this, these guys are the major league. But then think about if you're watching Memphis wrestling or Portland wrestling or what was left of Florida you know, I mean, you're like, oh, my God, my hometown promotion is definitely a triple A promotion, if not a double A promotion at this point. It, it, it's so funny. Uh, just just by luck yesterday, I was flipping through YouTube uh, looking for things to watch. And it, I don't know how it came on my feed, but I ended up watching that um, big house show that the NWA had at the Meadowlands from uh, 85. And, it, and coincidentally, I think it was just like a month or two after this show, it was the the one that uh, Dusty had wrestled Ric Flair on, and, and uh, you know, and they they had um, a huge, huge crowd for it, and it was a really loaded show. But like, was I, this the where when uh, Martel lost the title to Stan Hansen? If it was that card, and I think you're right, I think it was that. It, card. it had to be because that was Flair Dusty. Y- yeah, it, 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 I didn't see that particular match, but I was watching the Dusty Flair match really closely, and you know, sadly, uh, neither one came out to music. And I guess you know, me being uh, you know really more of a WWF guy, you know, you're used to these glitzy entrances, and you know, uh, even though both of them got a huge reaction when they came out. 
I mean, there was no 2001 for Flair. There was no theme for Dusty. When they both should have had this major dramatic entrance with spotlights and you know, no, no fireworks, but at least the spotlight and uh, you know music. There was nothing. And I'm comparing it to what I had just seen, you know, with this with this show we're talking about now, with Hogan coming out with Real American and even the undercard guys are having theme music and stuff. Uh, it, it just it just uh, shows you that uh, even though Crockett was this great, great promotion, they, they weren't in the show biz, business quite yet. They were, you know, aiming to get there. But uh, by the time that they got on that course, it was just too late. And, you know, we know what happened after that. There, <laughs> by the end of the 90s, there was no more WCW. No, and I wanted to go to that show at, at the New Jersey Meadowlands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, a great lineup, like the top AWA matches and basically uh, Starcade 85 Part 2. And But I was going to Montreal for New Year's right. and, you know, going to New Jersey on the 29th and then to Montreal the next day. I just wasn't going to do it. And when I, when I got home and about a week later, I learned that Stan Hansen beat Rick Martell for the AWA championship i was kind of furious at myself even though now i realize that look going to that show would have been completely impractical this hour goes by so fast it's insane but i do want to get a couple more questions in uh let me see steve i'll tell you what can you pick a question oh absolutely uh let's see here Nathaniel Uselton is asking, not being born at the time, how big of a deal was that wrestling was taking the spot of SNL and how well known was it that this was going to be a regular basis? I'm pretty sure as far as at the time, anybody that knew of this probably just felt it was maybe a pilot or just like a one-off thing. I don't think that the normal fan on the street realized that this was going to be the potential of uh, being on once a month uh, in the fall for NBC. But, but, you know, as far as us wrestling fans and people in the know, uh, wrestling hadn't been on network TV since I think the end of the fifties or the mid fifties. And uh, that was a huge thing within the wrestling business. The fact that they got back on the network again and, um, you know, I, I was I was very happy, very proud as a wrestling fan to see wrestling get this kind of coverage, and uh, and and wrestling was was you know treated with more respect than it had been before. It wasn't like this thing in the closet that is on at weird hours. It's it was more mainstream and something to be you know more respected. Yeah, you know what? I'm looking through the questions, and man, we've we've kind of covered everything. I mean, Brandon Rice asked, you know, was there a lot of hype surrounding this new venture into Saturday night? And believe it or not, there wasn't, although I think the WWF did as much as they could to get word out there. You know, they would... Like on their uh, syndicated show, they would say something like, you know, check your local listings, but they didn't spell out that, hey, we've got a show on NBC. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have helped tremendously if they could do that. But again, I understand why they couldn't. I know uh, Eric Ford had a very good question. He was asking, uh, do you know if this was advertised as a TV taping or a regular house show fans to the fans in Uniondale? With only four matches and one dark match, it seems like a crowd expecting a normal house show might be disappointed. Well, uh, I did look it up, and apparently before these TV matches started airing, uh, they actually had about five squash matches, which were your usual, like, uh, 
of the variety of, say, John Studd defeats S.D. Jones. They were all like uh, really low-level type squash matches that uh, you, you would just see like on a regular episode of uh, Championship Wrestling. Yeah, you want to make sure everyone is at the arena and seated before you know you start rolling those cameras. So they they probably just had regular wrestling. I'm guessing for a half an hour or an hour, and then they started recording the show. And once again, it looked fantastic. Steve, this has been a, a great hour. Thank you very much for joining me again. Well, it, it's uh, great to be here with you. And man, uh, we really lived through all this, and uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how wrestling has changed so much uh, all these years later. No, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those, one of those things that changed so much in 1984 and, and, you know, into 1985. And once again, the nineties, it changed dramatically again. And I don't think we're ever going to see anything like, you know, 1984, 1985 in wrestling again. Um, what I want to thank Brian last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. I also want to publicly thank Lou and Steve for switching around the schedule of this recording something came up for me and they were nice enough to both say yeah we can do this two hours later um i want to thank everyone for listening Uh, i hope you're back next week i hope you like the show this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network go vols beat utsa please this concludes our well not really plot twist here's a new segment for you to enjoy Okay, everyone, I have been sitting on this for a while. I'm going to introduce a new segment to Stick to Wrestling. It is called For Review Purposes. I stole that name from somebody, but I had the concept in mind for a long time. Sometimes... After the show comes out, uh, one of my friends contacts me. We discuss the show. And one of those people this week is going to be Rose Harmon. Rose, I'm going to ask you a question first. How did you discover this fine podcast? Oh, the the Arcadian Podcast uh, Fine Network. Okay. All right. So you wanted to talk about us discussing Saturday night's main event. What do you got? You know, actually, I was really curious about this book that you you said you got in the mail, The King of New Orleans. (laughs) Okay, everyone, you're going to kill me. I haven't even opened the package yet. But we had a discussion on the board, and I've always been a big JYD fan. I've I've seen a lot of his stuff, not only from the WWF, not only from what uh, the Mid-South stuff that is on the network, but from before that. And that was really prime JYD, and we were discussing him. I'm like, you know what? I want to buy that book. And as I mentioned, I roll the dice, buy a book during football season, and yeah, it hasn't been opened yet. Like, not even out of the package. Well, well, you'll have to give us updates on um, how that book is and, um, you know, just, just what all it covers. And it looks it looks good. It sounds interesting. I love that idea. Now I have to take the book out of the wrapping <laughs> and read a little bit of it and talk about the, uh, like, chapter by chapter, maybe, on Stick to Wrestling. Thanks for the idea. Oh, you're welcome. And... You know, since I I grew up firmly in the the cable ratings war era, it's interesting to hear you guys talk about Saturday night's main event because that's that's a whole different it's a whole different era. It's a whole different idea of wrestling on on network television, and it's a brand it was a brand new thing. 
it was a brand new thing, and it, at some point, it was complete. As I said, I mean, not to be repetitive, it was, it was completely inconceivable at some point that wrestling would be on NBC. And guess what? It's coming back to NBC. Wow. I mean, great timing on our part for once. <laughs> right? Yeah, I just read that. Yeah, and, you know, I wonder how it's going to go, but, I mean, I'm not sure if NBC is really bigger than USA Network at this point. I, that's something I'm not familiar with. Yeah, it will really be interesting to see, especially today as we're recording. It's the um, all of the layoffs and such. It will be interesting to see how, how everything turns out. I feel bad for people who get laid off, and that, those aren't just words. I mean, I really do feel bad for the people, but it's 2023. That's just the way corporations run. You know, you have to answer to your shareholders, and if you can cut costs, even if you're making money, you you are obligated to cut those costs. And, you know, I've been laid off before. I know what it's like. It's not fun, but I understand it. And, you know... I mean, going back and going back to when I was growing up, you know, working at a, a department store, I mean, me and my coworkers would just sit around sometimes if the, if the cash register wasn't busy. You literally never see that now. Right. Yeah. There's just not it's just not staffed like that anymore. No, everyone is on a skeleton staff and we all have to wait in line and we say things like, oh, worker shortage. Like, no, that's not what's going on. Right, like if you've ever been to a Dollar Tree, there's two people. (laughs) (laughs) I I was at a Domino's maybe more than a month ago, like two months ago, and there was one girl there working the register, cooking the food, answering the phone, etc. And I was dumb enough to pay for my food knowing that this was going on, not really knowing that this was going on, and I just left. I'm like, okay, you guys... Keep my $17, and then I just went to the independent place down the street, and wow, guess who had six guys working? I I always go to independent restaurants if I can. It just it makes a huge difference just today. I went to a place that's been in business since 1985, so longer than I've been alive. There is a place here in Nashua called Chicken and Chips that had a fire a couple of years ago, and they're finally rebuilding it. And when I walk in there for the first time in like uh, a year and a half, I'm going to be like, hey, the first time I ate here was 1979. (laughs) I was 14. I just moved to Nashua. Wow. Yeah, I mean, restaurants like that, though, they're a little piece of history, and uh, they make a neighborhood more interesting instead of just a bunch of chains. Uh, my favorite piece of advertising ever was Applebee's in the 90s, eating good in the neighborhood. Like, yeah, <laughs> you guys that. represent the neighborhood quite well in the mall or whatever. <laughs> but back to what, um, back to Saturday Night's Main Event, actually, I, one thing I love about these old shows is just the audience. I think you guys were talking about there's people of different races, ages, genders, just. It's not all, <laughs> what did Steve say? Like they were released, a bunch of guys released from a men's prison? 
it, that was ECW in the 1990s. I, it, it was like a looked like, on TV. It looked like a Colombian prison, but at least it had you know a good atmosphere. I mean, we we talk about Saturday Night's main event and all the things that changed under Vince. I mean, I remember going to the Boston Garden in 81, 82, 83. I don't want to say it was a dangerous place, but it could be because there were a lot of drunks. There were fights during the matches. Um, you knew not to wear anything that would be that someone could point to and yell at. Like, you know, don't wear... I mean, don't even wear a Boston Bruins shirt. You know, oh, Bruins fan over there. It, it was like that. You, you you really had to almost be be camouflaged. And then by 1985, you know, no, all of those guys weren't gone. But it was a very different overall audience where people were bringing young kids to the Boston Garden for WWF wrestling. Like, you know, my dad would never let me would have never let me go to the Boston Garden until finally it's like, Dad, I'm 16. I'm going. Uh, one time you guys were, uh, I want to say this was uh, back in the previous administration of this show, you were watching a, a world-class show and you were like, who let these teenage girls in here by themselves? <laughs> and they were crying. They were crying over Kevin Von Erich. They were like scream crying, hysterical over Kevin Von Erich having a wooden chair broken over his head. And I see this, just these girls by themselves. Okay, I get it's the Texas State Fair, but it's still wrestling. And maybe it was just different in Dallas than Boston. But you're right. I'm like, where are their parents? <laughs> it's so different now. And even even when I was growing up, you wouldn't have seen that. No, and you grew up. You grew up in. Did you grow up in world class territory? Was it uh, mid south, or that was actually way before your time? Yeah, but I feel like it's sort of that uh, overlap, like the four states uh, area. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you you missed out on the territories. I I remember now that you're much younger than me. But I mean, you you know you got into the WWF about when? In ninety six seven. You know, okay. um, you know, like I remember the the WWF magazines um, from summer of '97, like the covers with Bret Hart and um, and Bart Simpson. Like I remember that that remember magazine that. cover, or the one with the Undertaker. And um, I think there was a, a original PlayStation video game that I played. And I was, I immediately got more into like the magazines, and you know. Not so much the message boards because I was a little young, but uh, I definitely I I'm, I read "Have a Nice Day" by Mick Foley when I was like eleven or twelve, and that definitely it it hooked me for life, I guess, as a fan. I want to tell you, I want to tell everyone a Mick story. Mick Foley story. We I said there's going to be a ten minute segment. We're on minute nine. One of my friends got really sick in the late eighties. I mean, really sick. He was a you know, wrestling fan. Uh, I mean, he was practically bedridden. He was down to about seventy five pounds. And one day, there's a knock on the door, and he's and his mom's like, "Hey, someone's here to see you." And he's like, "Who?" Cactus Jack. Just out of nowhere, he visited my friend, and I, I will all. I really want to bump into Mick Foley one of these days and thank him for that. That's awesome. It yeah, really if was. I, if I ever met Mick Foley, I would tell him that 
or again, I guess, because I met him briefly at a meet and greet. If I, I would tell him that my dad used to watch him in Dallas as Cactus Jack Manson and remembered that like 10 years after, after that fact said, I remember him from, from world class. Like it was crazy. The things that my dad remembered from the, like the seventies and eighties wrestling and would just pop off randomly during an episode of raw. That, yeah, that, uh, Cactus Jack Manson, I do remember that. That's when he first started. Our 10 minutes are up. Rose, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. You have a good one. You too.